Good morning. This is, this is a kind of a, a, a great topic to be talking about nowadays for so many reasons. Um, and I think that's how I'll actually begin the presentation is a little bit about why I would be standing in front of you talking about diversity and inclusion and how that shows up at foot school, look at the nature of the work that we're doing. So as I said, we're going to cover the why, kind of the philosophical underpinnings of why we are digging deeper into this. And I see some families who have been with us for a few years, and you're going to note some changes. And you might even think, bummer, I wish my child had had the opportunity to have that uh, going on in the classroom. But I think it, it speaks to the fact that the faculty is working hard to stay abreast of the research and providing the children with as rich an experience as possible. So the place to start, I guess, would be our mission statement, which I think speaks quite clearly to the fact that um, we aspire to help children challenge prejudice and to have the skills to really thrive with purpose and joy in the world. And so that's the very beginning of the work that we're doing. And when I mention, when I speak of diversity and inclusion, we're diff diversity, yes, it means difference. And it means difference in every way that you can imagine. So it might be learning difference, it might be racial, it might be ethnic, language, um, gender. We're talking about the, the whole spectrum. Now there might be recurring threads that we specifically address in our presentation, but the conversations that are ongoing with faculty are about every way that you can kind of shape diversity. And inclusion, we used to just say, oh, we have a diversity um, committee for the faculty and staff. And we say, you know what, that's the wrong message. It's not just about our difference but it's also about feeling a sense of belonging. And so inclusion is critically important in this dynamic and this equation. So I got a text this morning from my partner and it said here, some morning reading for you. Uh, students decry anti-Semitism, they say is rampant at Amity High School. So it was actually a board meeting last night where the kids spoke to the fact that there was behavior and things going on that was really uh, challenging them. And so they were seeking that, the help of adults. So it's it's out there and so we need to be supporting our kids as, as best we can and I think it starts with the notion that we all have bias it's not anything to be like shameful of it's it's just the way that our brains are wired so I want to share a little video with you uh, the New York Times did a really nice series about bias so the video is just a nice it actually is a really relevant educational tool that could be used in middle schools and high schools to talk about what implicit bias is and it's the idea that our brains are actually wired to make connections and put things in categories. And for the most part, that works really well, right? We know without too much thinking that chairs and tables fall into the category of furniture. But it also can count against us when we make connections and correlations that really aren't healthy. So we can actually develop stereotypes about folks, especially if there are messages in our broader society that makes connections for us and we kind of just consume this without even being aware of it. And so that the example that they give is the correlation between black men and violence. That what we see in the news is so pervasive about black men and violence that even black people have a preference for white people because of the messages that they've kind of been hearing over time. Um, so I think it's something that we need to, to be aware of so that we can support our kids in understanding what bias is and what stereotypes, how stereotypes come to be. And also making clear to them that there's a distinction between the wiring of our brain and how evolution in an evolutionary way that was like a, a positive thing to be able to you know connect between the, the your inner people your the people who are part of your social group and distinguish between what might be a threat help them understand that as opposed to being racist 
right? Being racist is when you actually take action on those biases and you are intentionally trying to hurt or mine others. So the other reason, so we talked about our mission statement and we need to uh, really live our mission statement and provide opportunities for children to understand uh, how different shows up and how we can build community. We've made a case for the fact that it's you know, prevalent in the news and that we are all kind of wired to make these connections and to have bias. And finally, you know, I've heard from families, well, isn't it too young? In fact, it's not too young. At six months old, children already can distinguish between skin color. Um, at two years old, they're making reference to boys and girls and gender differences and colors of skin. And at three years old, they're starting to make, ask questions about skin color and why somebody might present differently than themselves. At four years, they're already commenting on family structure and um, socioeconomic difference. And at five years old, they're starting to, they're really ripe for stereotypes because their thinking is so one-dimensional. They'll make correlations and connections that actually are not accurate. And so they, they're really primed for us to get in there and provide them with information so that they can figure out how to kind of navigate the world. Um, there was some research that was done a couple of years ago out of Yale, the uh, child study group. Uh, Walter Gilliam's research, I don't know if you're familiar with that. But um, he showed some video footage to some early childhood teachers. And, she and he told them that there's some disruptive behavior here. And then he, what they did, they had some technology where they could have the, the they could track the, what, what the teachers were observing, you know, tracking their eyes to see who they're paying most attention to. And in fact, there was no disruptive behavior. But the faculty spent 42% of their time looking at the black boy, 34% looking at the white boy, 13% looking at the white girl, and 10% of their time looking at the black girl. And so again, the notion that we have blind spots and we may come with bias and we need to be constantly kind of checking ourselves and, and, and making sure that we're um, supporting kids as best we can. The other piece of research that he did that was really interesting was um, he asked teachers to read a narrative and to have them, and there were different uh, narratives based on ethnic background and race. And he said, rate them in terms of the level of disruption, how disruptive you think it is. And interestingly enough, the white teachers looked at the black boys and said, well, it wasn't really that disruptive. Whereas the black women looked at the black boys and said, it's highly disruptive. So the, the standards that they had in place kind of internally for the children was dramatically different. And so he thought, well, wait a minute. Maybe if I gave them a little bit of background so they can understand where these children are coming from, there'd be more empathy. And what he actually found was exactly the opposite. So that if there was a narrative about like um, low socioeconomic opportunities or a single mother or something like that, the, the white teachers actually had more of a feeling of doom and gloom, like there's nothing I can do about it. There was no actually further empathy or care, concern or care for the child. Whereas if it was the same race, then there was greater empathy built. And so again, it's, it kind of speaks to how, in evolutionary terms, we are designed to like, you know, seek out and affirm those who look like us and then kind of wonder about the other who is different from us. Another reason for, for doing the work with the children and sharing this information with you is that it's so timely and relevant. I just shared with the family, um, if you came in just a few minutes ago, that in the New Haven Register was a piece about Amity High School and how the kids went to the board meeting to say that uh, anti-Semitism is rampant in the high school. So it, it's a pressing, timely conversation. Um, but for other reasons, 
By 2020, we're going to have a majority minority. By 2044, the school-aged children, white children, are going to be in the minority. And so there's something about cultural competence and being able to navigate difference and appreciate difference and build community um, across difference. The other interesting uh, data that's not really uh, happy information is that um, hate crimes have increased since 2015, that there are more and more documented cases of hate crimes and uh, bias issues. And this information comes from the National Association of Independent Schools, uh, our trend book. Every year we get some data about what's going on across independent schools. And again, the work that we're doing in the, the, the kind of learning experiences we're putting in front of children is endorsed and supported by the National Association of Independent Schools. And part of the reason for making this case is that, it's funny because I'm kind of looking at the, like I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, routinely there are families who ask, like, why are you doing this? Aren't you focusing on the difference as opposed to the community? Where is the experience for young white children in all of this work that you're doing? And I think what our um, diversity consultant has, has really taught us is that the, the world is kind of set up in a way that we want to affirm the children who don't see themselves represented on a daily basis or not having those experiences. And so, again, it's, it's, a, it's a, an organization or statewide effort countrywide effort to really think dramatically different about the experiences we offer our children. Again, in our mission statement, there's clear language about excellence and diversity promotes excellence, um, as well as a safe, safe place for children to learn. So the social emotional learning, we know that if children come in anxious or worried or not feeling like they belong in a place, then barriers go up and they're not going to be accessible to academic learning. And we also know that the predictors for success, long-term success and kind of happiness and fulfillment, is not test scores, it's not the ERBs, it's really those non-cognitive skills, the ability to communicate, to problem solve, to resolve conflict, to get along with others. And so again, the case for, the, for um, really digging a little bit deeper into the work that we're doing here. When we think about um, during different learning profiles, so this is the work that we do. We're thinking about what children need as opposed to kind of the notion of fairness. So different children have different needs, and we're going to set them up with those opportunities to really thrive at school. And again, that's something that kind of cuts across uh, the work that we're doing here. Our thinking about things has evolved. The research is informing us in a different way. And so um, I like this visual because it really pulls apart the different uh, ideas around gender, so you have biological gender, sex, the parts that you were born with, gender identity, how you feel about yourself, gender expression, the person you present to the world around you, gender presentation, how the world sees you, and then sexual orientation. And so yes, early on we do talk about uh, gender identity and gender expression, because again we want to cut through and support the kids in understanding stereotypes, and that just because you like pink doesn't mean that you have to be a girl. Um, we also, you know, when we talk about sexual, sexual orientation, that'll come later on. In fourth grade, we'll talk to the kids about puberty. We'll review all of these different concepts and talk about the notion of a spectrum. Um, but it isn't until we get to fifth grade where we actually introduce, we introduce intercourse. We talk about sexual reproduction, that we talk about uh, sexuality a little bit more explicitly. Um, and I know, again, that that's a concern that parents have had over the years when we read I Am Jazz about a transgender child that, is, are they going to get ideas about that? Is it too soon? We're not talking about sex, sexuality. We're talking about gender expression. 
And I can share with you that there are things that we know about our community um, in terms of how pieces of their identity and we're asking for greater partnership from families in terms of understanding the children and what your family values are and how you identify. But there are things that we don't know. And so we re really do want to lean on the notion of being more inclusive as opposed to less inclusive. So we do read literature in the classrooms as early as first and second grade about gender identity. Um, <clears throat> so this is, I want to stop for a minute um, and talk about some of the images that you'll see because this, this is really the what. This is how it shows up in the classroom. Um, this is actually a mosaic that's being built in third grade. This is new to the third grade program. And what they're doing is tearing apart different aspects of their identity. So things that they have in common, um, different interests that they might have. And they're building it together to show community and how we bring together our beautiful differences to make this whole. They've also, um, in, old, in the old days, they used to have inviting days in third grade. They're moving away from that. And now they're having affinity lunches where the kids can come and pick a table topic and join others to have discussions. What we found with the inviting days is that those who were invited were invited and that was a great setup for them. The kids who might not be invited really felt apprehensive and not like they belonged uh, on that given day. So we've mixed that up. What, what's this? Who was invited to what? The kids would choose. Oh, so the kids would cut, could cut across classrooms to say, oh, 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 would you like to come and have lunch with me today? And sometimes that worked out really beautifully and other times it didn't. So we thought, <laughs> you know what, let's redesign the construct so kids can come together about common interests, but they'll be more inclined to mix it up and talk to kids they wouldn't normally talk to. Um, so I'm going to talk more about curriculum and how it shows up in the classroom, but before I do that, I, I wanted to provide a broader framework for how we think about diversity and inclusion at foot. And it includes, certainly includes a program and curriculum, but it also includes individual work and reflection. It includes professional development. It includes thinking about the faculty that we have on staff and the children who sit in our classrooms. And so we, we are very intentional and we are, we're not necessarily where we want to be in all regards, but it's, it's active work and it's on our minds. Um, where you will see it show up most, I think, is in the curriculum and the conversations that might be coming home from, from your children or the experiences they're having. And I think that's also part of why we have sessions like this is to keep you abreast of what we're doing and then get questions from you if you have concerns or if you're observing certain things. Um, so the classroom, in, in kindergarten, you know, how is this all coming together? In kindergarten, uh, you're familiar with the body mapping project. It starts with the self, and it's very intentional to make sure that the kids have a sense of how they kind of perceive themselves and present themselves to the world. So intentionality about mixing their own skin colors and conversations about that. Leslie Long, who's our science teacher, comes in and talks to the kids about melanin and why people have different skin colors. Um, they're matching their hair, their eyes, and so forth. And it really is a sense of affirmation of themselves. Like, who am I? And what do I have to offer this community? Um, something that we've done a little bit differently this year, and I really have to credit the, the kindergarten teachers because they've They've been pretty remarkable. Um, again, we have a consultant chap who's worked with us over the past two years. Um, and she works at Little Red Schoolhouse in, in Manhattan. And so it's, it's a convenient partnership. But one thing she, that she brought to us was the notion of having persona dolls in kindergarten. And so these, you have them on the table here. And the idea behind the persona dolls 
is to provide an opportunity for what we call, and I believe I have a slide, about windows and mirrors. So we want to see the children to see themselves represented in the classroom. That's the mirror effect, right? And so you can do that. In this instance, we're doing it through persona dolls. We might do it through literature. We might do it through the faculty who are in the classroom. But we want the, them to see themselves reflected. The other piece of the equation is um, the window effect, where they get to look into the identity or experience of others. And so this year, the kindergarten teachers um, are really diving deep into using persona dolls. What they've done is created an inventory of the children who are in their classroom. They've looked for opportunities to connect with children who might feel like they're having a singular experience. They've looked for opportunities to fold in different kinds of experiences that the children are not, that it's not represented in the classroom as a whole. And then based on all of that information and feedback that you've provided through the kindergarten questionnaires, they're then designing dolls that the kids can kind of connect to. Connect to. So I'm going to let you do this, Alexander, because it'll be a lot better. But could you just say a few words about Lillian? Who is Lillian and um, how you might use her? So Lillian was introduced yesterday. And for each of these dolls, we started by integrating more of the curriculum and where we were right now. So each one of them has their own All About Me packet that the students do as well at the beginning of the year. And the teachers also use that All About Me packet at the beginning of the year. So that's how they're introduced, is through the All About Me packet, but also giving a little bit more of their background. So Lillian's mom um, is from Taiwan, and her dad is American, and so we talked about sort of her culture and what's important to her family in terms of her um, going to school and learning Taiwanese Mandarin on the weekends, as well as then being in a school outside of Boston. And so all of these children are based on real children and their identities. And so that way, their stories and their identities stay the same. Um, so that every time we bring them up, these are things that the students have connected to. And so that was when, when we brought her up yesterday, a lot of the kids would say, well, I take Mandarin classes, or I take Greek lessons on the weekends. And they, they would make those connections to the doll, um, without Lillian in particular. Um, and then we also use them to mirror different situations that come up in the classroom or interests, um, as well as things, again, other ways that the students can connect to those dolls or those children. Yeah. So, for example, um, I know that Susan did a lesson with her uh, persona dolls where the child was anticipating Grandparents' Day and didn't have a grandparent who was coming. And so it's a very open dialogue with the children. Like, what do you think she can do about that? And how is she feeling? And what would the solution be to, to resolve this situation? Um, and so the kids do some really active, intentional work around building community and supporting uh, different identities within the classroom through the persona dolls. So when you said they're based on real children, just people that you know, and then you model after and get a photo and all that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no one from this school. Okay, <laughs> got it. But yes, ch real children from my past, my past life. <laughs> so um, the, the, the most explicit way that uh, our work shows up is through the social studies curriculum. And I have a couple of um, things here to help visualize the, the framework. One is the here and there, because there's going to be a recurring thread throughout the years of comparative cultures and comparative study. Um, that might be here and there in the notion of me and you within the classroom. That could be here and there in terms of other geographical locations. Um, and then the notion of now and then. Like how, how are things now compared to the way that they used to be. Um, also we're looking at concentric circles. So we start with 
the identity of the individual child in kindergarten, and then we kind of move out. And we, we, there's an iterative process, so it's always about the child's identity and how they show up in the classroom and building community, but the boundaries get stretched a little bit. So this year in first and second grade, they're going to be on a kind of an exploration of indigenous people and how, you know, who are they and how did they live many years ago? What did their community look like? What does our community look like? And one thing that we've learned over the years is I think there was a tendency to really focus so much on representing indigenous peoples back 600 years ago that the kids were kind of getting this fossilized notion of, oh, so Indians dress and look like this, and so the teachers have been very intentional about bringing contemporary models of indigenous people into the classroom and talking about stereotypes. Um, in third grade, there's um, exploration of Connecticut, 1830s Connecticut, and again, that historical piece of how did children live then and how do they live now, and then they're looking in the second part of the year at, at Australia. And I think, again, this year they're going to be doing a little bit of innovation in terms of what if we know something from our first and second grade experience about indigenous people here in the United States, what do the aboriginal experiences look like in Australia and how are they similar or different um, from what we know about our, our own indigenous people in the United States. Um, in fourth grade, there so we've gone from self, classroom, New Haven, New Haven, Connecticut, and then, you know, here now and then. Fourth grade, the United States gets a little bit broader, exploring immigration experiences. Uh, again, our learning over the years, we were not sharing all of the children's experiences with immigration when we were talking about immigration. So the teachers have developed a, a unit on enslavement and forced migration. Um, and then fifth grade, again, it's more of a historical lens, um, ancient Greeks and Egyptians. And they're thinking about, um, quite intentionally, whose stories documented and why, and who was kind of left out of the conversation. Um, I said, I mentioned windows and mirrors. That's again the framework that we're using. We want to make sure that the children's own individual experiences are affirmed and they're feeling really confident and great about themselves. And we are also looking to build community. And I mentioned that there are different ways of doing that. You can do that by having role models in the classroom. You can do that through literature. You can do that through persona dolls. Um, but we're really lo looking intentionally to set up situations where children can see themselves in some format represented in, in the, the curriculum, as well as um, developing some further understanding of other and building empathy. And you'll notice that we changed our excellence from Falco's Pride to empathy. Um, first and second grade, I mentioned the dismantling stereotypes. And so we have a nice, um, unit with all kinds of resources where the children get to become stereotype uh, detectives and they go through the literature and say what's problematic with this image why would that not be okay what message is it sending and they can actually like look at the literature in the classrooms and stuff and there's things that probably you and I had access to in our younger days that have these images there and the kids are becoming really quite adept at identifying stereotypes and this is kind of a pre-assessment. So that was a drawing that a child did the other day um, in anticipation of the unit around stereotypes. Like what, what comes to your mind when you think about um, Native Americans? Um, a similar activity was done a couple of years ago with um, our politicians, draw a picture of the mayor. And it was interesting the number of um, Lincoln-type 
images that were drawn, you know, a tall white man with a big hat on. Um, and so the kids actually get to go on a field trip and meet the mayor. Um, I mentioned role models. So again, they're historical figures, there's literature. In third grade, some of the work that they've been doing quite intentionally is to explore leadership and how that shows up. So this, I don't know if you know this, this was kind of relatively new to me, but this is Prudence Crandall. She's our state heroine. Did you know that we had a state heroine? Okay, so Prudence Crandall's story is that she opened a school, um, a private school, and it was lovely. It was well-funded and well-attended, and then she allowed an African-American girl to join the school, and the community kind of said, well, well, wait a minute, you've crossed the line here. And so she, um, they actually passed a law saying that that was, no long, that was not allowed, that they had to have segregation, that African-American girls were not allowed to attend the school, um, and then she was arrested. And uh, part of the interesting part of the story, it doesn't, it, unfortunately, her story kind of ends there, that she, she was afraid for the well-being of the children, so she didn't go back at it and stuff. She moved out west and continued her life with her, her husband. Um, but the good news is that there were children from, I think it was New Canaan Country Day, students who said, you haven't recognized this woman for the work that she did. We deserve to have a heroine. We have a hero. Where's the heroine? So they advocated to get a heroine. So now she's our state heroine. And then other students said, well, we have a statue of our male hero, and I can't, I can't remember who it is right now, some famous pol political dude, um, but we don't have a statue of our heroine. So again, the students advocated for that and a statue was built. So those are the kinds of lessons that the kids are going to be exploring in third grade, that you too can be a leader, and leadership can take many forms. It can be quiet leadership, it can be uh, very vocal leadership, but they're, they're going to be exploring different examples of that and making sure that it's really a robust array of folks who are put in front of them. Um, this is a piece from the quilt that the fourth graders make as a kind of a closure to their study of um, enslaved peoples and forced migration. Um, and there is a piece of quilt playing an important role in the journey towards um, freedom. Um, what's really important here is that we're doing two things. One is we are sharing, again, examples of leadership and overcoming adversity with a really positive angle towards that. Like people actually did survive and fight for change. And people of color did that work, as well as other people. So it's not about white people saving people of color. Um, but the other piece of this, of, of what we're trying to be very intentional about, is providing children of color and children with different backgrounds opportunities to see themselves represented in day-to-day -day activities. It's not just about being a hero or everyone aspiring to be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but that they can kind of see themselves represented in day-to-day -day, um, experiences. And again, that's the intentionality behind thinking about third grade and leadership and the fact that it can be a quiet leadership and show up in the classroom, or it could be you know, more, um, a more visible act of leadership and, and courage. Um, this is just some of the wall work for the Egyptians, and again, Egyptian and Greeks still be studying um, whose history is this anyways, and why is that the case. Um, one of the other um, consultants that came to visit us, Rosetta Lee, um, she brought this framework and said, you know what, when you're thinking about setting up your classrooms, the children should be able to answer all these questions affirmatively. 
And I like to think it folds in with our work with Falco's Pride about developing empathy and creating inclusive classrooms. Like children should be seen and heard and again that goes back to the windows and mirrors. As well as protected and treated fairly. So that means uh, the adults in the community paying attention when things happen and supporting them and helping them navigate conflict and, and things that might be coming up in the classroom. Um, there are lots of opportunities for children to share their personal experiences. Um, so the kindergarten questionnaire, again, in order to kind of support the classroom and the design of the persona dolls, this year we asked families to set, fill out a questionnaire before school started um, to get a better sense of how they describe their own identities so that we could support the children in the classrooms. Um, journey stories. So this is actually uh, the fourth grade when they do their immigration unit. Families are invited to come in and share their stories about uh, how they came to be here. Similar stories are shared in first and second grade when we talk about New Haven and how families came to be in New Haven. So again, it can be an iterative pro process and there can be multiple opportunities for, for families to partner with us. North Star is um, a group in the fifth grade and, and that's an opportunity where kids can come together to talk about um, issues around self-esteem and community and friendship and who they are and how they're feeling about their experience at foot, foot school as well as how they manage like dealing with new information they're getting from from the media you know and really uh, affirming who they are this year we changed the the model years ago when it originally came to be it was designed for girls before they went to fifth grade and it was about body image and self-esteem and we said, well, wait a minute, why are the girls participating in these conversations and the boys are going out to recess? So we had the girls and the boys have these opportunities to meet in small groups with a mentor, with a leader. Um, again, the girls came back to us and said, Ms. Mel, we don't understand why the boys are whittling and we're sitting here doing art projects. I said, oh, okay. Um, so we redesigned that and we aligned all the activities. Last year, the kids came to us and said, Ms. Mello, we don't understand why you have us, if there's gen genuinely a gender spectrum, why do we need to decide whether we're going to be in the boy group or the girl group? Can't we be mixed? And so we actually have now three girl groups, three boy groups, and one mixed group. So the kids can choose where they want to be, where they feel most comfortable. Um, and so again, we're evolving. We're learning from the kids and from uh, best practice how to shape their experiences. Um, and then affinity groups. And so I think this is the third or fourth year that we've been working with our affinity groups. And we've been experimenting at different grade levels. What we found works is starting in third grade, we offer um, two sessions of affinity groups, actually three now. We have an affinity group for children who have learning differences. We have an affinity group for children whose parents are divorced or separated. And we have an affinity group for children um, who identify as being of color. The idea here is, I don't know if any of you read um, Whistling Vivaldi. It was our summer read a couple of years ago. And he talked about one way to support children um, of color is by creating um, critical mass, pulling kids together who have similar experiences to support them so that they don't feel isolated in the classroom. And so that is really the intent behind the affinity groups is to pull children who might be outside of the norm so that they can realize, oh, I have community. I have, I, there are other kids who have had experiences like mine. Um, I lead the, the group for uh, separation and divorce. Kasuth leads the children of color. And Kathy Pamelard, who is the learning support teacher, leads the learning differences. They're completely voluntary. We ask your permission.
for you to decide with your child if you want them to participate. And on any given day, a child can say, no, I'm going to opt out today. I don't really want to. Um, so we offer that from third grade. Third grade is kind of standalone. And then fourth and fifth grade is offered together. Um, and those have been really great sessions. Middle school is also now offering the affinity group sessions as well. This is a fourth grade project. Um, and I think the inspiration came from a Native American artist that Mike Goldschneider was exploring. And it had to do with the interplay between who you identify as and how society uh, superimposes notions about you on top. And so I don't know, you might have seen them hanging in the hallway last year. It was a, like a plastic flap that you could lift up and you could see what the kid ha kids had done in terms of their artwork. And then the overlay is kind of social expectations or a message that the kids wanted to convey. Um, so again, we're thinking, you know, not just within the classroom and the social studies curriculum, but how can it show up in other areas? I would also offer that our May Day has undergone some real thoughtful tweaking, I'll say. Um, it's an important tradition to us. It dates back, you know, since the beginning of foot. Um, and it's a really lovely opportunity to bring community together and celebrate through dance and music. What there was kind of a sentiment, however, though, that it wasn't quite inclusive enough and it didn't really reflect our community. And so the music department has been working really hard to, one, educate people about the history behind the music and which groups it's representing, but also to introduce different kinds of music um, in the overarching program. Again, building community. Last year we had uh, a fabulous opportunity to bring in um, Grace Lynn, this author, and she spoke to the kids about identity and actually feeling like she kind of lived in two camps, you know, being part of North America, but also having a Taiwanese background um, and the challenges of that. Um, and so this is just the, the, a way of kind of welcoming the kids in the beginning of the year. And I think this is Margie's classroom. I mentioned professional development as being kind of key to the work that we're doing here and keeping people fed, if you will, and inspired and on target. Um, we've worked with the Anti-Defamation League in the past. We've had Rosetta Lee, Sandra, or Chap, and, and then Deborah Rothman, I think it was last year, I think it was two years ago, she came in and talked about uh, gender diversity. And so um, we have some of their resources in the library, so if you want to check those things out, you can feel free to do so. Um, and if you're looking for something to read, I have a handout on the table about uh, you know, the notion that children are not colorblind. You're welcome to take that with you. And if you're looking for other things, let me know, because we do have a lot of other resources uh, to support families. Um, every year, we send a cohort of faculty and students, ninth grade students, to the People of Color Conference. And that is a really great venue to learn about, again, best practice in the areas of diversity and inclusion. Um, and then we've had, over the years, summer reading where the whole faculty is engaged. So Whistling Vivaldi was one of our summer reads. Uh, <clears throat> we've also had other broader ways of approaching diversity and inclusion by reading different um, novelists and, and getting a different look into their experiences. <clears throat> we have a faculty and staff um, diversity and inclusion group. And this, the, the last time we met, we meet once a month. Um, this is the activity that we did, so the intent was to explore our own identities and kind of put it up there. It's hanging in the faculty room. But in those meetings, we do a couple of things. One is we always have some kind of a warm-up, like this, 
where we do a little deeper dive into our own experiences and identities. Um, and then we dig deep into either curriculum or professional development or read an article and have discussions. We set goals. So our goals this year include two. One is that we're going to make sure that everyone in the, the diversity and inclusion group, which numbers anywhere from 15 to 25 in any given meeting, so there's a lot of interest. Um, one is that they will each attend the border crossers, or it's actually called now the um, Center for Racial uh, Social Justice in New York City. So it's a one-day training, so everyone's committed to doing that. And then the other thing that we're doing is we have taken a racial identity activity on the road. So that means that we've taken it to different department meetings um, and divisions so that faculty and staff in smaller cohorts can explore their own racial identity and ask the, themselves the question, how does that show up in the classroom? How do I bring myself to the classroom and how do I create a safe place for all children and different experiences? Um, and then this year we'll be hosting the Unite Through Understanding Day, so you can look forward to, to that. That'll be in April. And then we have a parent affinity group. And so I have allies there because really they initially started, it initially started as an affinity group for parents of children of color. And the family said, this is not what we're really interested in. We really would rather have an allies group where we can build community and, and really disseminate information. And so Kasuth and Carol are in charge of that um, group. And, you're, and it's an open invitation anytime anyone can attend. What else? And then I would offer that um, whether we're talking about like the institutional journey or we're talking about our curricular journey, we have two curricular reviews this year, math and social studies. This, this is on our agenda for exploration. Like how can we do a better job? Um, or whether we're talking about our own individual journeys, it's just that. It's a journey. So I feel like in the time that I've been here, we've really committed and moved as a community. Um, and I'm just looking forward to kind of digging a little bit deeper and seeing how we can further our efforts and kind of be more inclusive.